We are continuing to look in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 8 this morning. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You can just follow in the the bulletin. That's the passage I'm going to be looking at. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. I know a lot of you would know the name Jonathan Edwards, even if you've never read much by him. He was a pastor and theologian in colonial America, and you've probably heard of him because of this famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. For some reason, that's the one that's always put like in your English anthology, and they don't put any of the other sermons. He actually preached another sermon called Heaven is a World Filled with Love. That one never gets in the, in the anthology, you know. So I, th- I think he kind of becomes a straw man of like the angry, you know, guy in a powdered wig who's staring down at you. But a remarkable man, really brilliant man. People who had not crossed the street to hear Brian Habig preach study his writing simply just for the brain power that's there. But remarkable guy. One of the things he wrote that he left behind is a, is a piece called A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. And, you know, he was pastoring during this thing that we've come to call the, the First Great Awakening. And it was really, well, it was what I was just praying for our city. It was an inexplicable movement of God's Spirit where just all these people in a concentrated period of time became Christians, churches grew, churches swelled. It wasn't confined to one kind of church. It's just like something that we long to see in our own day. So Jonathan Edwards wrote about it, and, and of course lots of people were, when he says conversions, he means people who were not Christians who became Christians. They were converted. And so in this narrative, he says he he highlights two surprising conversions. And one of those two is an an individual who was just, she became extremely concerned that she didn't know God. She became overwhelmed that she did not have a relationship with God. She talked to her family about it and all of a sudden realized God had worked in her life and was a transformed person and uh, just became very joyful, became someone who really loved worship, anticipated worship, uh, became very close to her pastor, became very concerned about the people in her life who didn't know Jesus and about the life of her city. The reason she was a surprising convert is that she was a four-year-old. Now, when you, when you read that you're going to have an account of you know, a narrative of surprising conversions. Maybe what you're expecting is it was the wild young man in the town, you know, or it was the public drunk in, in, this, in this little village. But when you get a solid conversion, and by the way, later editions, when this was reprinted, and by that time Edwards had died and this four-year-old was in her late 60s, the editors put a, a little uh, editorial note and said, this woman still walks with the Lord. It wasn't a phase she was going through. She was dramatically converted when she was four. Uh, that's what we would call an outlier. That, that, that's, that kind of doesn't fit into our normal schemes. And it's kind of a paradigm buster. This account by Luke, and again, if you haven't been here, um, Luke, the same one that wrote the Gospel of Luke, third book in the New Testament, wrote the book of Acts, and, and I kind of say this every w- week, really you can think of them as a two-volume work. The gospel is volume one, the book of Acts is volume two by this one author work. Luke is giving us an account of what, has, what would have to be considered a paradigm buster. 
this is, a, this is a narrative of a surprising conversion. Just for review, Philip, that you're about to see here, Philip is one of those men that Jake preached about a couple of weeks ago, one of the first church servants, one of the first deacons that you met back in Acts chapter 6. He's a man that's full of the Holy Spirit. And he's supernaturally nudged into a remote area where you wouldn't expect to find anybody, at a time you wouldn't expect to find anybody, and there's a surprising person there. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water... The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for any account or any example that we ever have seen or will see of a convert, of somebody being brought out of darkness and into light. But, Father, thank you for the ones that, that even by our standards, surprise us, shock us. Lord, uh, open your word to us. And thank you for all that you put uh, into your word for us. Let us receive it now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, not long ago, somebody sent me a, a sample. It's... Uh, I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen this with a book where somebody sends out a sample chapter, like a little booklet, to make a teaser for a book. And It was a book written by somebody who used to be a pastor. He's now a, a counselor and a, a writer and a speaker. And, and it's a book about how pastors are, are fairly odd people. And how, you know, the Bible says that the gospel is this good news. And if there's any group of people in the Bible that need good news and need the gospel, it's pastors. So I thought, huh, I, I resemble that remark. So... I just was reading this first chapter, and I want to I share this story that he mentions in here as he's talking about 
We all need good news. We all need good news. No matter how much you're around it or never been around it, we all need good news. He was uh, at a Christian conference with his brother, who's also a, like a counselor and a pastor. And there was a man speaking at this Christian conference who was a pastor. And the topic that he was speaking about was what he called family worship. Which meaning, means, it's kind of his, his way of describing uh, what he thought was the urgent need for people with families to come together and have set times. He would say set times every day where you circle up and we read the Bible together and we talk about the Bible and we pray and maybe we sing together and we urge each other on. Now, if, if you're listening right now and you're thinking about your own family, either the one you grew up in or if you have, you know, kids of your own, you're thinking, whew, that's a tall order. Okay, Exactly. So he's telling stories of Christians from the past who did this and how devoted they were to it and how much time they spent on it and the fruit from it and just really setting the bar incredibly high. And the guy that writes this, as he's listening to this man in this conference, he keeps thinking, all right, uh, yeah, for sure, great principle. That would be a, a golden ideal. But get, like, give people some grace. Give us some grace. So he keeps waiting and waiting, and the guy's just saying, here's the standard, here's the standard, here's the standard, and he finishes. So later that day, it turns out that that man who spoke on family worship and this man that wrote this and his brother end up in a car together riding back to a hotel with another man that's driving the car. And the man driving the car said to the man who spoke on family worship, let me ask you, he asked the question that, no, that no, everyone was thinking and no one asked. He said, let me, let me read it. He said, if a man in your congregation came to you and said, Pastor, I know I'm supposed to have devotions with my family, but things are so chaotic at my house that I can barely get myself out of bed and get the child fed and off to school. I don't know how I would ever be able to pull off the devotions too. What would you say to him? And what he's doing is, he is giving him an opening that you could drive an 18-wheeler through to go, man, I would say, look, I, I get it, we all struggle, and, and give him some grace. And he said, and here's what the answer was. He said, I would say to him, I'm a pastor, which means I carry many more burdens for many more people than you do, and if I can pull off daily family worship, you should be able to do so as well. And we've hired him as our third pastor, and we're... <laughs> can't wait to bring him on staff. And then the writer says this, there was no identifying with the man's struggle. There was no ministry of grace. Coming from a world this man didn't understand, he laid the law on him even more heavily. And it's just really easy to do that. I've done it. I regret and I've had it done to me. But it's so easy to like take biblical content, take the scriptures themselves, and when somebody's struggling, to come to them and say, if you would just live up to the standard, it would be fine. And all of us who are out there failing to live up to the standard are going, I need some good news. And I agree with what you just said. If I did live up to the standard, that would be great, but I'm not living up to the standard, and I still need good news. And the, the pesky thing that the Bible keeps doing is it keeps saying that the good news is actually good. 
And I love the Bible being pesky in that way. That it keeps saying that the good news for people who are failures and cynical and apathetic and they love their phones so much more than the Bible, it is indescribable. It is good news for them as they actually are. Uh, this is an account of a man who in the, the, the norms of the biblical moment doesn't fit the pattern. Like when we think of people who know God, people who believe in the Messiah, we think of people who, who look like us. Like we think of white Gentiles. In this cultural moment, a normal average Christian would look like an Easterner from a Jewish background. That's what a normal Christian would look like. He would not look like a Nubian a dark-skinned Gentile. He's an outlier. And what happens is, for this man who's an outlier, in that moment, as he actually is, this is good news. One thing I love about this passage is, Luke tells you some about him, but when Philip encounters him, he, he, he knows he's important, he's got a chariot, and probably carries himself with presence of wealth, but he's a reader. I mean, the way Luke writes it, it says that... Uh, Verse 28, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Verse 30, Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 32, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. So this is this man reading. Let's use that as a template, okay, to look at this passage. Let's think about the reader, the reading, and the author. All right, the reader, the reading, and the author. The reader. What, what is Luke show you about him. And, and again, if you haven't been around Luke, he's, he's the history guy. He's the interview the sources guy. He's the meet with the eyewitnesses and get the details guy. So he's, he's giving us some inside track here. Verse uh, 27, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, what, what do you learn about him just from that, a few things. First off, he's a foreign dignitary. Ethiopia in this day is not modern-day Ethiopia. It's in the area of the African continent that would be modern-day Sudan. And that's not a place you want to live right now, but in that day it was a very vibrant, pretty wealthy kingdom. And there's even artifacts and, and uh, ruins from that time. The queen was the more powerful monarch. She was more powerful than the king. Candace wasn't so much her name. That was a title. She was the Candace. And this is the man who is the equivalent of the secretary of the treasury or the minister of finance. Very important. In fact, if you want an example of the fact that he's wealthy, he has his own copy of Isaiah. Up until the invention of the printing press and for a while after that, to own your own copy of a scripture or the scriptures, you were wealthy. So this is a Gentile with his own copy of Isaiah. He's a foreign dignitary. Second thing, he's what, he's what has been called a God-fearer. And you may have never heard that category, but I want you to know this category. There were people who were born Jewish. They're descended from Abraham, descended from the 12 tribes. Men are circumcised. Those were Israelites. Those are Jews. There were then Gentiles who became Jews. Sometimes the men would be circumcised. They would undergo a ceremonial washing. 
proselytes, Gentiles who became Jews, ethnically Gentile, Jewish in belief. But there was a third category called God-fearers. These were Gentiles who, unlike all the other Gentiles in the world, they believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They actually believe in the one true God, but they haven't been circumcised. They haven't kind of gone all in. He's a God-fearer. How do we know he's uncircumcised? Now, this is where I don't want to be unnecessarily awkward, but we need to acknowledge something. He's a eunuch. He's a eunuch. And eunuchs were somewhat common in the practice of royals. Persians had them, and Assyrians, and Mesopotamians, and the Chinese, and the Greeks. Herod the Great in the Bible had eunuchs. People entrusted service in the royal court, who, men who had been physically altered. And here, here's what you need to know. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. I just cannot bring myself to read this verse from up front. But it's in the community group notes. But Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, the law of the Lord said, someone who had undergone the kind of physical alteration that a eunuch had undergone could not enter the worship place of the Lord. And it says that this man works for, Can- for Candace the queen, uh, hi- high-ranking, had traveled from Ethiopia, modern-day Sudan, to Jerusalem to worship and could not go in the temple. One of my favorite things when it gets to be Christmas time, I love the downtown prez, <clears throat> lessons in service, uh, lessons in carol service. The lessons in carol service of the world is the one that takes place on Christmas Eve, King's College Chapel, University of Cambridge in England. That's the one. And they, uh, they broadcast it on the BBC and public radio, and it's late afternoon there, which means it's Christmas morning here. Listen to it. It's past Christmas Eve. Happiest guy on the planet. It's the place. Beautiful, beautiful structure. Um, what if you loved that kind of music? What if you loved um, the content? What if you loved that kind of church service and all that kind of thing? What if you drove from Greenville up to Charlotte? Let's not drive to Atlanta. Drive up to Charlotte. Fly from Charlotte Transatlantic flight to London, which takes a chunk of time. Take the train from King's Cross, London, down to Cambridge. Take the cab from the train station in Cambridge to the Cambridge campus to King's College Chapel and then stood outside. That's what he did. I looked up on Google Maps. There's no, there's no town anymore where... This, this kingdom was based, but I found the closest one I could find in Sudan. Right now, with present roads in a car to drive from there to Jerusalem, which would, and by the way, you can ferry over the Red Sea now. You'd have to go around it before. But right now, with roads in you know, a car, 105 hours. And he's in a chariot without the modern day road system and probably has to go all the way around the Red Sea. He went a long, long way to not go in the temple. The reading. By the way, if it confused you, how did Philip know he's reading? We're actually historically unique that we read silently. Historically, the normal practice was when you read, 
you read out loud. You're both watching it and you're hearing yourself read the words out loud. The Holy Spirit, who's just all through the book of Acts, doing stuff all in the scenes, behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, nudges Philip, who's in the area, go to this remote area. And it may have, I'm not going to get into this, it may have actually been noon. If there's any place you wouldn't go at noon, it's the desert. No one's there. But the Spirit nudges him, go to that road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Just go there. So he goes there. And then the Spirit nudges him, go over to that chariot. Probably like the only one going down the road. And so it says Philip, so he runs to the chariot. And so he's running, I guess, running alongside it. And he hears somebody reading Isaiah. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? The man says, no, I don't. I, I need somebody to help me. Can you help me? Come up in the chariot with me. So he sits in the chariot beside him. And they look at the passage together. What's the reading? What's the passage? And as it turns out, okay, and I'm making my air quotation marks, it just so happened at that moment to be, that's right, (laughs) a congregant is doing this back to me right now. It just so happened to be Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah chapter 53 is very interesting and has been, and I don't say this in a snarky way, I say it by the nature of the case, it's been a very challenging passage in Judaism. Because it's a passage, and there's several passages like this in Isaiah, but it's kind of the, it's kind of the one. It's an account of this mysterious figure called the servant, or the suffering servant. And it is confusing, and it, has, it, has, it had confused and does confuse Jewish interpreters. Because sometimes it sounds like the servant is the people of Israel. Or sometimes it sounds like it might be Isaiah himself. But then it sounds like he's somebody that does things that Isaiah couldn't have done and the Israelites couldn't do for themselves. Like it says that the servant will take all the sins of God's people on himself and bear them. And that he'll be punished like he's a lawbreaker, even though he's not a lawbreaker. And just for no extra charge, I wonder if this really caught his eye when the eunuch read read these words. It just says this in passing. Who can describe his generation? In other words, the description of this figure, the suffering servant, is somebody who, because of his life, he couldn't have a wife and children. I wonder if that resonated with this man. Who is this man? Who is this talking about? So he invites Philip up and says, yeah, I, is, is the passage talking about Isaiah or is it talking about someone else? And you know, the whole Bible's important, but verse 35 is about as happy a verse as I know of. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. See, that is the key to unlock every passage. And as I've said each week, you know, the Gospel of Luke is volume one. Acts is volume two. At the end of volume one, do you know what we find Jesus doing? Not once, but twice. 
he appears to people after he's risen from the dead, and he explains to them how all the scriptures are about what? Him. And here you have somebody following his lead who says, oh yeah, I, I have got the key for you to understand this passage of Isaiah. And the key is a man named Jesus. And it just says, he told him the good news about Jesus. Yesterday, Dana and I were driving somewhere, stopped off to get gas, and um, got out my wallet and I looked, and my debit card wasn't there. Never a good feeling. And we had eaten out the night before, and I'd used that debit card. So I thought, I may have left the debit card in the restaurant, which is a really not good feeling. But I remembered when, uh, when I was taking off that, my shirt that night, I remembered like, a, like the receipt, that kind of crinkle in my front pocket. And I thought, maybe I put the receipt and the debit card in that front pocket. So use a credit card to pay for the gas, which is always a great strategy. If you can't pay for something, just use a credit card. Why would you not do that? Always a great American strategy. So paid for that, or one day we'll pay for that. Uh, got home <laughs> and found that shirt and reached in the pocket, and it's just crinkle. It's just paper, receipt, no card. I thought, ugh. So I called the restaurant, told them my name, described this debit card, and um, I guess it was the host that said, well, let me check. Long wait. She comes back and says, yep, we have it. It's at the bar. Daniel, the bartender, has it. it. When you come in, just go to Daniel, and he'll give it to you. Now, at that moment, it's not like somebody had to walk in from stage right and go, and you see, Brian, that constitutes good news, which offsets the bad news of you losing the debit card. This is actually a good moment right now. No one has to explain it. Just at that moment, it's just, it's like, that's awesome. And it's back in my wallet right now. Think about this. One of the first challenges to the Christian gospel were people who said this, and they're from a Jewish background. The challenge was this. You must believe in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. You must believe in Him. But you need to do one more thing. You must be circumcised. Now again, not trying to be overly awkward, but if that one thing had been added to the gospel, would it have been good news that day for that man. But what he heard from Philip was, this passage is about Jesus. Jesus can bear all your sins. He can sprinkle you with clean water, the passage says. Bring you to God plus nothing else. Just believe him. Just trust him. And man, next happy verse, verse 39, that the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. It doesn't really explain what that means. I know you, does that, did it mean he supernaturally just transported him? Luke doesn't explain it. It just says the Spirit directed him elsewhere, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went home rejoicing. And I, I never want to be speculative with you. I, I don't ever want to stand up and say something that I think might be the case and, and act like I know this happened. But if he had that long of a journey and he just came to believe in Jesus and he just found out 
that Isaiah points you to Jesus and he still has some more Isaiah to read, what do you think he did on his long trip where someone else is driving? He kept reading. And what would he have come to three chapters later? Look in italics. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree, i.e., I can't have family. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Can you imagine how it felt to read that? Can you imagine how it felt for him to read that? He had already been shown this, but to feel deep down on his insides, God likes me. He likes me. And I'm in. And he went home happy. We don't know what became of him. One church father named Irenaeus records the tradition. Again, don't know if this is true. This is not a thus saith the Lord. But Irenaeus said that the man became a missionary in that part of Africa. I would not be surprised. When the good news has been really good for you, you make a great missionary. Who's behind all this? Is the main character Philip? Is the main character the eunuch? Who came to Philip and said, go to this road at a hot time of the day where no one usually is? You see that chariot? That there's no reason for you to approach? Approach it. Who is behind the timing that this passage just happens to be the one that this man is reading. How about this? How was it that in the desert they just happened to pass water when he became a Christian? Who's behind all this? Who's the author of Isaiah and Acts, ultimately? The Lord. And if there's anything that should come through to this, come through to us about this is the fact that God goes after real people. And He wants real people who don't live up to the standard, who can't measure up to really actually find good news. He wants the outliers to be brought in. What do you hear Scripture saying to you? What do you hear sermons or community groups or your own reading or a Bible verse app or whatever? What do you hear God in the Scriptures saying to you? Do you hear Him saying, everything would be fine if you would measure up? Then you're not hearing Him. We need the key named Jesus and take it to any passage and open it and hear God saying, yes, 
Yes, I'm going to nudge you on some things. If you're sitting here thinking, well, Bible, doesn't the Bible sometimes rebuke you? Oh, buddy, it has done so to me recently. But once you get rebuked, once you see where you fall short, what's the strategy? Do better? I will meet the standard now? Okay, great. Your Savior is Moses. Moses was a great guy. He's not a good Savior. Or to say, if you fail, there's good news for you. There's someone who never failed. He'll take all your failure. He'll give you His righteousness. He'll change your heart so that you do start changing. Inside and out. That, that's actually good news. Let me end with this. I have, I've told this story before, but I just have to tell it again. One of the missionaries that we support is a precious woman from our church, Emily Witten, and she is in Cambodia with Mission to the World, and she works with all kinds of folks, but she works with women who have been trafficked or with those who work with women who have been trafficked. And one time as an update, just to let us know about her life, Emily sent us a video, and as a, as a vehicle for teaching English to these women, she taught them a song, a simple English song, and the song was, Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, so it was this video, it didn't show a lot of faces, but you got the audio of, it was clearly their second language, Cambodian accents of a group of women coming out of trafficking, singing, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. And the reason that was so moving to me when I heard it was, number one, just thinking about Emily being over there so far away doing that and how touching it was to hear their voices. But the other reason it was moving is because it's true. Like Jesus worked in Emily's life and put it in her heart to go over there and raised up the means for her to go over there so that she could sit and be with those women and tell them that's true because Jesus actually does love them. We are all outliers. And the good news is the good news. Amen. Let's pray. Father, for good news, for sinners like us, we give you thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.